Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's a weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and the good things we can do for people and the planet. My name is Kevin Fulda. I'm your podcast host. Today we're speaking with Dr. Dana McGregor. She's a research scientist at Rothamsted Research in the Department of Biointeractions and Crop Protection over in the UK. So welcome to the podcast, Dr. McGregor. Thank you very much. Well, really nice to talk to you. Um, it's interesting that uh, we get to talk about weeds because we never do that. And yet weeds are such an important part of agriculture. And I'll start out with the easy question. Why study weeds? Well, um, why not study weeds? We study plant pathogen interactions. We study crop diseases. We study ways to make the crops better. But actually, um, if you look at the statistics, we lose pretty much a third of our yield to weeds and weeds alone. So if we want to close those yield gaps and try and make sure that we have sustainable and, and um, efficient food production, weeds are really a very easy and logical first place to start. Okay, well, that makes sense. But don't we have herbicides to do that? Ah, yes, chemical solutions. The problem with um, herbicides is that plants are really quite clever. And if we continue to kill them with the same thing year after year after year, they um, find ways around them. And actually, there's lots and lots of plant species that have found different ways to survive herbicides. And at last count, you know, hundreds of plants that are resistant to the different types of chemicals that we can spray onto them. Yeah, and those are the ones that we found. And those are the things that we know about. Yeah, those are the things that are registered and recorded. Um, so pretty much uh, anything that survives in your field that you're spraying with chemistry, if it's resistant, then next year it drops its seeds. Those seeds then get selected. And we have these huge selection pressures that are happening in fields every year. And the weeds are just finding ways to survive those herbicides. Yeah, it's, uh, it keeps our molecular ecologists in business because over here we have this huge problem with Palmer amaranth, which they really have studied how it has survived and how it continues to gain resistance. And what are some of the big threats over in the UK? Yeah, Palmer is a great, a great study. Um, it's a really interesting plant. Um, we don't have anything that's quite as dramatic as Palmer. Um, our major weed is actually blackgrass. It's Alipocarcius myrosides. And it's a grass weed that grows in grass crops. So it's a, a really bad problem in the winter cereals here in the UK. Um, it's also all over Western Europe. And there's a huge swathe of Western Europe that's covered with, um, with black grass problems. Um, and it's interesting because it's a grass weed that grows in grass crops. And so you're limited to, in the number of different um, herbicides that you actually can use. Because if you get too far, if you've got something that's a dicot in a monocot um, crop, then you can use stuff that's very different. If you've got grasses and grasses, it makes it a lot more difficult. Could you talk about that a little bit more? Because some of our audience may not be familiar with the different herbicides that allow you to really select for, you know, grasses versus dicots. 
Yeah, so there's some really interesting. Um, I actually don't know all that much about herbicides. Um, my lab mates like to tease me that I have no idea what's going on. Um, I know the smells more than I actually know what they're actually doing. Um, because my background isn't as an agronomist or as an ecologist or even as a weed biologist, really. My background is genetics and molecular biology. So um, I can tell you a little bit. There's different, um, basically, herbicides work by targeting essential pathways in, in plants. So things like fatty acid biosynthesis, photosystem two, so they lead to changes in, in um, the ability of plants to do essential products. So um, things like uh, cell division, microtubule inhibitors, those sorts of things. So those are major differences, major um, essential pathways that herbicides inhibit. And so there's a bunch of different types of herbicides, um, and they all act in different ways. But essentially, you have to find something that kills the weed and not the crop. So you're a little bit more limited than you would be um, than say, you know, just killing a bacteria and a human, because those two things are very, very different. Whereas weeds and weeds, uh, plants are still plants. Yeah. And I guess I see the problem with a weed inside uh, a grass. So a grass weed inside a grass, you know, in corn, for instance, for years, you could use atrazine because that would target your dicots or any of the broadleaf uh, weeds and leave the grasses, which corn is the grass. So it allowed you for that selective type of uh, herbicide action. So I, I really see the problem of black grass. Uh, how important are those crops that it grows in to England and other places in Western Europe? Ah, um, so England is actually a relatively small island, um, despite the fact that we think it's enormous and that it takes over the whole world. Um, but England is actually England, Scotland and Wales together. Um, we predominantly make winter wheats. So uh, winter wheat is the major cash crop for most farmers in, in, in Great Britain. Um, we do some barley as well. Uh, there's oilseed rape production, um, beans, peas, some other smaller level things, but really the main crop. And historically, the single crop that was done uh, in England uh, was really just winter wheat. Okay. So if, if, if these weeds are so important and it's so critical to understand them, why are they so hard to study? Ah, the major thing about studying something is that you need to have the tools and the techniques to ask questions of it. So if you want to study um, something like Drosophila, you bring it into the lab, you find ways to culture it, you find its genetics, you find ways to manipulate those genetics. Um, when you're talking about something as wild as a weed, um, we, we have very few tools to be able to figure out what it's doing. And so um, a lot of what we've been working on and what, um, what other people work on in weed biology is really finding the ways to study the things that we want to study in the weed. So we can ask questions about how, how it reproduces and how long it takes and that sort of thing. Or we can ask, you know, what does this population have that that one doesn't? But in terms of sort of the, the, the techniques that other people have, the, the model species people, um, we don't have any of those tools in weeds. Yeah, so that really is such a big barrier. So we'll talk about your development of some tools when we get back on the other side of the break. So we're speaking with Dr. Dana McGregor, and she's a research scientist at Rothamsted Research over in England. And this is the Talking Biotech Podcast, and we'll be back in just a moment.
In trying times, it's all hands on deck to fight the scourge of misinformation. Journalist Cameron English and scientist Kevin Fulta dissect critical stories in the news on the Science Facts and Fallacies podcast. How real are the COVID-19 therapies? Who can you trust for good information? What's happening now in the world of genetic engineering? These topics and more are discussed every week on the Science Facts and Fallacies podcast over on the Genetic Literacy Project website and on Apple Podcasts. It's informative, entertaining, and guaranteed to help you become more conversant in the current issues in agriculture, medicine, and technology. That's Science Facts and Fallacies with Cameron English and Kevin Fulta. Every Wednesday via the Genetic Literacy Project. And now, back to this week's podcast. And welcome back to the Talking Biotech Podcast. We're speaking today with Dr. Dana McGregor. She's a research scientist at Rothamsted Research in the Department of Biointeractions and Crop Protection. And one of the big issues of crop protection is protecting them from competitors. And the competitors are weeds. And as we've been discussing, one of the critical issues throughout the UK is uh, is blackgrass, which is growing in their winter wheat and really causing uh, economic pressure on that crop because it's very difficult, they, you know, very easy for these things to outcompete the crop itself. So, you know, your background is in really the model system of Arabidopsis, and you've answered many other questions using that system. And so, what are you doing using, you know, what we've learned there? to begin to take apart the question in something like blackgrass. So what I'd love to be able to do is to be able to go into the lab and and treat blackgrass like I used to be able to treat Arabidopsis. Um, Pull up the genome browser and find my gene of interest, find out where it's expressed, uh, order a line that has a mutation in that that particular (laughs) gene. Um, These are all things that... um, I can do none of those things at the moment. So we are in the process of developing a genome. So in collaboration with partners at Bayer and at Clemson University, Rothamsted is is creating an annotated genome. We're really close for that. So that'll be step one. Um, I've been doing lots of transcriptomics to try and figure out what genes are there, um, what's expressed, when is it expressed, those sorts of things. But yeah, basically that's the, the level of understanding that we have. We have different lines that we've picked up from different places in the field, but um, we don't have any of the tools that, are, that many of the model organisms have. Um, and actually, surprisingly, um, for being such a terrible weed and such a really good colonizer of agricultural fields, blackgrass doesn't really like to grow inside. Um, we've brought it into our controlled environment rooms and it dies. And so we've had to spend a lot of time trying to figure out at least how to grow it and to make it and maintain it inside in the laboratory conditions as well. Wow, that's really cool. Do you have to grow winter wheat in the laboratory in order to make the blackgrass happy? Uh, fortunately, no. Um, so <laughs> blackgrass, uh, it does like to be crowded though. So I do tend to put a couple of plants per pot, but um, I'm fortunately don't have to grow too much wheat as well. Um, and I can just do just blackgrass in the pots, but uh, we do have to stake it and and wrap it up and because and, uh, it does like to fall over if it's not supported by something like wheat. Yeah. 
Well, well, how big is the genome on that thing? Oh, it is enormous. Um, fortunately, it's diploid. So step one, um, that's a good news. The bad news is that it's uh, about six gigabytes. So it's a pretty large genome. Um, but it is a it is uh it is a diploid species. To put things into context, um, essentially we're reassembling a crocodile, so it's kind of the same number of chrom- chromosomes and overall genome size as crocodiles. Wow! So six six gigabases, so yeah. six billion bases. How many chromosomes is that spread over? Seven. Over yeah, seven so chromosomes. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> so for comparison, when we did diploid strawberry back in. 2010, it's about 200 megabases. So, uh, you know, I mean, a fraction of what you're trying to deal with and probably a lot of repetitive, well, obviously lots of repetitive DNA and a lot of other real estate that you need to account for because probably a similar number of genes, right? And that's just a lot more space spreading them out or we're du- duplication. Yeah, we're quite lucky in that um, I'm, I'm not the one who's doing any of that work. <laughs> So we sent we sent material over to Clemson, and and my partners down in Clemson um, are actually doing all of the 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 alignments and the analysis of it. But yeah, we're quite lucky. Um, so the sorry the um, just to correct really quickly, the mean um, flow cytometry data is showing a three point four gigabytes. So the you know the two n of six. Um, but yeah, so basically. Okay. Yeah, sorry. Just to, um, my numbers were a little bit wrong in my head there, but yeah, it's the mean size of the total genome is about three point four gigabytes. That's uh, still enormous. That's seventeen times strawberry and about what twenty four times a rabbitopsis. It's it's a really big genome. It's almost and, as big as an elephant, almost. Yeah, so that that's pretty good. So, well, you know, this is the interesting part about this that I wasn't really anticipating was. You know, you, here you are as a scientist who's, you know, got a great record and, you know, excellent publication record, and you really take on an opportunity to do something where there's very limited resources and you get to develop those resources. And what has been the biggest challenge right off the bat? Um, I think the biggest transition has been language. Um, it's interesting because when I go to speak to old Arabidopsis people and I talk about, you know, altering um, gene expression by leading to post-translational modifications or these sorts of things, um, the language is, is really easy to translate between Arabidopsis people to Arabidopsis people. Um, most wheat biologists um, are actually have an agronomy background or an ecology background or, um, you know, they don't tend to have really strong molecular backgrounds because there's not been that historical link between molecular biology and wheat biology. Um, and so I've had to learn a whole new language uh, myself in terms of understanding what what their problems are. And they've had to whole, learn a, a new language with me. But I think the biggest challenge uh, technically, is just that the stuff that used to be super easy to do, um, designing primers, for instance, uh, you know, typically it would take you five minutes because you'd take the sequence, you'd find a good 20 mer, you'd send it off. Um, I don't actually have the sequence to find. So I have to find a heterologous species. I have to find something that's close enough and then take a guess. Wow. So that, it's, it's kind of what we went through back in 2004 with strawberry. You know, I keep thinking back to this because I was thrown into a pool where I hadn't, you know, I hadn't know what I was doing. I mean, I said, all right, sure. Um, the joke at the time was, if, if you want me to study strawberries, you better find me some strawberry trees. Yeah. And, you know, it really was at that level. 
But what, what's the closest relative to black grass? In terms of model organisms, um, I guess it's close to brachypodium or to um, lolium or um, wheat, perhaps, rice, maybe. So it is a grass. Um, but each of those things have been domesticated and followed, except for brachypodium, of course. Um, but, you know, they're they're very, very different. Um, and uh, but I guess um, brachypodium or, or wheat are, are really the, the things that I go to. And so recent uh, work that appeared in plant physiology, it was really a demonstration of different methods to begin to interrogate gene function. And so could you talk a little bit about how you're maybe bypassing some of the conventional approaches in a way to answer questions with some sort of throughput? I'm really proud of this work. Um, it's something that, um, well, if I had a penny for every time somebody said to me, oh, this will never work, I wouldn't probably have to work again. Um, and I'm really <laughs> pleased that it has worked because it's opened up an amazing opportunity to really study what's happening and why things are happening in black grass. Um, to, to give you a bit of context, what we used to do before is we'd go out into a hundred fields and we'd separate the, you know, the, 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 plants in those fields based on the level of herbicide resistance that they had. And then we'd scan through everything that might be different between them. Uh, this is really good for generating questions, but it doesn't actually solve that this thing is doing that problem. Um, and so what, we, what we've done in the lab now is, is I'm using techniques that have been developed to alter gene expression in model crops. So these are the things that are virus-mediated gene expression technique um, or genetic modification techniques. And I just gave them a go in black grass. Um, so I have some colleagues here at Rothamsted who have been developing VIGS, so that's virus-induced gene silencing, and VOX, which is virus-mediated overexpression. And they've got these working really nicely in, in, in wheat and in barley. And I thought, well, if it works in those other grasses, why not in black grass? So um, the, the way that these techniques work is that they actually, you change the virus and then you introduce the virus into the plant, and then the plant fights the virus. And so in the normal way that plants fight viruses, they lead to loss of, you know, they prevent the viral genes from being expressed, or, uh, you know, they, they have ways of fighting the virus that keeps it from replicating. Um, and if you trick it, the plant, into thinking that its own genes are part of the virus, then the plant itself turns out its own genes in response to the viral infection. Yeah. Yeah, pretty cool. So I guess the idea is, you know, just to kind of recap that for the listener, is that you can essentially program a virus to contain information about the gene of interest and then have the virus then have the virus infection take place and then have the plant fight the gene of interest. So it actually is a way for you to knock out or suppress the sequence you're interested in, at least in a in, uh, through introducing this, is it, is it always a transient process, meaning you introduce it and you just see kind of a temporary change? The nice thing about this process is that it's completely dependent on the presence of the virus. So um, it feels like kind of a weird time to be talking about how good viruses can be. But um, in plants, at least, when you introduce the virus, um, as the, the, the virus is present in the plant, it leads to change in gene expression or it leads to the presence of a new protein that you've introduced into the virus. So that's the overexpression part of it. Um, and, and yes, so it's only happening when the virus is in, in that part of the plant. 
And do any of them end up being stable where you have them passed from generation to generation? So you have some sort of tools you can use in subsequent generations? Um, there's kind of two definitions of stable. Um, and there seems to be these two camps of, of talking about stable transformation. One is that it can be passed from generation to generation. The other is that it's integrated into the genome. Okay, so this the viral the virus mediated gene expression techniques do not integrate into the genome so not uh, traditional genetic modification in that camp there is some evidence that if you take the barley stripe mosaic virus which is one of the ones that i've used for the to induce the loss of function mutations there's some evidence that it can go into the seeds and then it can get passed into the next generation um, to be honest, I haven't had time to be able to do that because the techniques that I've developed are so new that we haven't actually gone through an entire generation of blackgrass yet. So I, I can't tell you if it works in blackgrass, but at least in, in barley, there's some evidence that it can be passed on to the next generation if the virus can make it into the seeds and if that virus stays stable through the next generation of seeds. How, um, when you talk about using blackgrass for transient overexpression, mm. so you add a virus that's got a gene in there that you would like to turn on, and in, in your paper you showed uh, green fluorescent protein, that kind of thing. Do you have any sense as to how robust that system is relative to something like Benthamiana, where, you know, the, the tobacco um, type that they use to bring, like, say, raised proteins, that kind of thing? Yeah. So when you're talking about tobacco, usually what happens is you take um, and make the um, you make the constructs in agrobacterium, and agrobacterium is a naturally occurring plant um, modifier. And so basically, what agrobacterium does is it transfers its genes of interest into the plant, and then they're made by the plant. Um, so that's kind of a stable integration in one uh, understanding of stable integrations because it actually gets transferred into the genome of that cell. Um, so with agrobacterium, what you have to do is you have to sort of propagate that cell or those lines on and on. The nice thing about the VIGS, so the, sorry, the VOX, which is the virus-induced overexpression, is that it's just the virus. So if the virus is present, then the, the protein gets made. Because what viruses normally do when they replicate is they co-opt all of the plant's machinery to make its own proteins. So viruses don't have, um, they don't have ribosomes and they don't have machinery to make proteins. So they use the plant's um, protein-making machinery for themselves. So what, the, what this system does is it takes all of that machinery that's naturally occurring and it just adopts it. So I just take some other sequence, I put in the, the GFP, the green fluorescent protein from jellyfish into the virus introduce the virus into the plants, the virus infects the plants, and it, in the process of making its own replication, it also makes GFP. Yeah, pretty cool. And, but is it possible to make uh, stable transgenics in blackgrass? Oh, I don't know, is the truth of it. Um, <laughs> so the, uh, I don't want to say no, because it, somebody might prove me wrong. Um, uh, but the thing about it is, as I said, blackgrass doesn't really like growing inside. It's also yeah. exquisitely timed with natural seasons. So it tends to germinate in the autumn and it sets its seeds in, in the summer. And so if we're going to make stable transformations, we're talking about, you know, about 11 weeks or so to make the, the stable transformation using callus techniques. We're talking about three generations using in, inbreeding and selection. So we're talking about three and a half years before I can get a homozygous line. So um, although it's not really 
impossible. It's sort of impractical as in terms of timeframes for research questions. Okay. And that's why using your transient techniques work so well, or, or at least are most appropriate. But how do you find the genes to test? And so when you're right now, you have a system where you can do the silencing or overexpression and, and then assess, you know, what is the effect on the plant? But how do you find a target so the um, there's been quite a lot of work uh, in the past working towards these sorts of lists of genes that might be involved in in, in herbicide resistance. Um, the nice thing is that means that a lot of that work has been done for me. Um, so there's a lovely publication in, in the plant journal um, that has a very nice table of genes that could be involved. Uh, in terms of the, the tests that I've done already, um, really I did the logical first steps. So I did GFP. I... Uh, added in um, BASTA resistance. So BASTA is a an herbicide that kills plants. We know that there's a gene from bacteria that that renders that herbicide inactive. So I used that, herb, um, that gene. Um, and also all of the other papers in Blackgrass are kind of leading towards one particular gene being involved in non-target site resistance. So of course I would test that. So right now I'm using the literature because as I said, we don't have a genome. So I don't know what else to look for. Uh, so I had to start with what was available, and then I'm working towards trying to find new ways to find unbiased approaches towards getting new genes so that I can test further things in the future. Well, when we start thinking about this in the larger perspective, then, you know, even if you find a gene that is, you know, relevant towards, uh, you know, the resistance, how does that change, you know, agronomic practice? I mean, can you develop... How is how is knowing the genetics useful in solving the problem in the field? So really what you're asking there is, so what does this do for me? Um, and uh, <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and believe you me, this is a question that I get all the time. And, and when I said originally that the biggest challenge is, is a change in language, um, when I talk to really hardcore fundamental biologists, uh, I never get this question. When I talk to um, farmers and agronomists, immediately they want to know, how is this going to solve my problem? Uh, the way that I answer this question usually is that in order to fix a problem, you need to know what's broken. So if you went in with your car to a mechanic and you said it doesn't work, the mechanic would look through the car and try and find out what was what was what was broken first before just starting to replace bits and pieces. And, and it's in the same way, we need to understand at a molecular level how blackgrass can survive the current cultural controls and current chemical controls before we can start to engineer new ways. Because if we just keep throwing stuff at it and keep trying to fix it in new different ways, you know, we could be actually compounding the problem or we could be just, um, you know, using herbicides just unnecessarily because they aren't going to work. And so really, you know, by understanding the genes that are responsible for, for resistance, then we can start to figure out ways to avoid those genes. And at that level of specificity, then we can solve the problem. No, that's really well put. You know, you're talking to a basic scientist who appreciates that kind of thinking. Um, you know, I don't, uh, whereas, you know, the, there are growers in my state who will say, doc, don't give me a, <laughs> give me a solution, not an experiment, yeah. right? And uh, I'm sure you get that too, but how hard is it to find funding to work on something like, you know, black grass? Well, um, 
hopefully, uh, hopefully when my bid goes in, I'll, I'll tell you that it's really super easy. And it, and it's um, <laughs> but, um, funding is always the issue, right? And I've been super fortunate in that the last two years at Rothamsted, I've been funded by the Institute Strategic Program in in the Smart Crop Protection um, Program. So this is a, a lovely grant that funds quite a lot of us, and it allows us to get on with work that just needs to be done. So we don't have to have that directed funding from a single funding source that is aimed with this, with these objectives and that sort of thing. It has a big aim, um, find new ways to protect our crops. And it had a whole bunch of, of sub, sub aims and sub objectives, one of which was to try and develop some tools to deal with black grass on a molecular level. So uh, within that, um, we're quite lucky here in the UK in that we've got these big uh, strategic program uh, possibilities at the research institutes like Rothamsted. Um, and so we, we have a little bit of ability to, to sort of develop these tools as they're needed. Um, I'm in the process of writing a grant. We'll see how, how that works out. I don't know how easy it's going to be or how hard it is. Um, I'm kind of in that weird sweet spot between I'm working on an extraordinarily applied uh, species um, using extraordinarily fundamental biology techniques. So I, I have to try and pitch it really carefully. But yeah, if anybody has any um, any funding sources that they want to give to me or any ideas of how I can make this grant stronger, please do get in touch. <laughs> oh, you know, it's it's I, I keep going back to it, but it sounds a lot like my original trek into strawberries. You know, they uh, but my first funding source was eighteen hundred dollars. And came from the strawberry growers and they said, well, maybe you could come down and tell us about how you would like to use some grant money and talk to our growers. And I was terrified because hmm. here I was, a, you know, a rabbit opsis scientist with a pretty good toolbox who, you know, did a lot of cool stuff, but really knew nothing about the application. And I had to go give them a talk and to go down and, uh, and give a talk seemed way over my head. And so I went down, put a folding chair on the stage and said, you know, I, I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah. <laughs> and, and basically said, I, I said, I may have an answer, but I don't know the question. So um, could you just discuss your needs? Mm. And it turned out to be one of the, I hear, um, turned out to be a great approach because the growers are so used to, or at least at the time, we're used to people coming from the university and saying, here's how you're doing it wrong, you know? Yep. Uh, and yeah. Uh, yeah, for them to say, you know, I'm somebody here to serve you and to help you uh, turned out to be the beginning of a really wonderful relationship that's now 20 years in. So mm. I understand where you're at. Um, <laughs> certainly do. Yeah. Co-development of projects is actually an incredibly good way to make sure that there's you're doing good, impactful science as well. Um, and so I am working with with various companies and I'm, I'm talking to, um, I was quite lucky in that when I first started at Rothamsted, was right at the end of this huge collaborative grant called the Blackgrass Research Initiative. And um, through that, we had a really good connection of, um, of farmers and practitioners across the UK. And so I was able to actually go and talk to them and, and have conversations with them because my first ever foray onto a field ever was in 2017, and uh, and that was a that was a very interesting experience as I walked out with my little uh, my little boots and and um, my my gaiters and uh, got sucked in up to my knees <laughs> and realized I needed to buy myself <laughs> some wellies. So yeah, it's uh, it's been a, an, an interesting learning experience. But I think working with the people that are actually dealing with the problem is incredibly important. 
Oh, that's really good advice. And I think the, uh, you know, the other good advice that maybe you could pass along to many of the listeners who are on this is, you know, that it is possible to radically change gears and that you don't necessarily have to, that that if you have good training in, in science or maybe, you know, in, in an area of science like plant science, that it does translate to other models and other questions and that you can be at a, you know, world-class institute, you know, doing, doing top-notch science in an area that maybe you didn't even know about, you know, a few years ago. So, so, you know, that, that's a really nice subtext. Yeah. And it's, um, I have changed fields quite dramatically a couple of times. Um, I mean, overarching, my research is really, you know, how do plants survive in where they are? Um, and, and weeds actually just do that really, really well. So for me, the transition was totally normal. Um, when I was speaking to interview panels and things, they, they kept saying, so, so you want to work on black grass? Um, so it was, it was an interesting transition, but I think the thing about it is uh, if you can learn to ask good questions, if you can learn to set up experiments with really good controls and you know whether it has worked or not worked, then actually, you know, you can go off and ask questions about pretty much anything. For me, I, um, I, I love the idea of working on something that actually makes a difference. I'm, I'm relatively food motivated and having, having the concept of having good food security for a long time is, is really appealing for me. And so I wanted to do something that, that could really make a difference in, in terms of a direct difference within my lifetime rather than just, you know, continuing to find out how different promoters were regulating various protein interactions, you know, that sort of thing was, I, it's, I'm fascinated by fundamental molecular genetics. I loved working in my other fields. I, I found that they were fascinating and they really drove me. Um, but I like the idea of having something that could actually make a difference within a, a relatively short amount of time. Well, let me make a prediction. You know, it seems like you're, uh, you've got the right stuff to really make a big impact in this area. And my guess is we'll get together on the podcast in another three or four or five years and talk about the big accomplishments that have happened to address this very important problem. So, you know, thank you very, very much for joining me on the podcast today. Well, thank you very much for having me. And, and um, I look forward to taking you up on that offer. <laughs> and thank you for listening to another episode of the Talking Biotech Podcast. Please, please, please write a review on iTunes. Uh, share this with a friend. Talk about the science and especially with some of the episodes we've had on hot issues like COVID-19, like glyphosate. Go back and revisit those and share those conversations with others. And of course, if you remember us on Patreon, it helps us do even more work outside of this podcast. This is the Talking Biotech Podcast, and thank you very much for listening. Talk to you again next week. The Talking Biotech Podcast presents the personal views of Dr. Kevin Falta and its guests. These are not the views of the University of Florida, its faculty, staff, or students. Comment on today's episode on the Talking Biotech Facebook page. Send comments and suggestions to kevinfolta at gmail.com. And remember, tell a friend, write a review, or float us a little love over on the Patreons. Your support will directly translate into this podcast and broadening science education efforts everywhere.
You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.